Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus, it's Brendan here with Mark. It is the week ending 14th of September 2018, Mark G, the year is flying and I was just looking, Mark, we are getting very close to our 50th episode. Perhaps we need to have some sort of competition or a prize, Mark, what do you think? I think we have to have a prize, Brendan. I think that uh, without a doubt, 50, I reckon that's almost an, our first annual, like, our, you know, the first year of us doing this. It just about is. So we we will need to think of two things, who we give the prize away to and also what the prize will be, Mark. As you know, last time, for those who haven't been subscribers for very long, we gave away a book um, for the last prize, a veterinary um, book on, on reptile medicine and surgery. So the next one, Mark... I suppose it needs to be veterinary-related, but it doesn't have to be. It can be something completely different. It could be a beautiful framed photograph of of your fantastic, um, one of your bird photos, Mark. How about that? Well, I'd be very proud if that was it. But it's an at-first annual. It has to be a couple of things, I think, Brendan. We'll have to put our... uh thinking hats on and come up with a little bit of a combination of uh, exciting and uh, um, things that remind people of us. So maybe a bird photo, I don't know what, from – you had some great photographs. I saw those black and white photographs you sent me, um, the landscape views. They were were pretty impressive. They probably look even better on the wall than uh, my bird ones. Oh, I doubt it. But um, yeah, I had fun doing them. But I, I wasn't particularly feeling it that day when I when I was taking those photos. Um, probably because it was after that um, breakfast. It wasn't quite a breakfast, <laughs> so it was one of those days. Um, but yes, um, maybe we can have a photo for somebody to, um, to to give them to to remember us by. And I think the people that will. All, all the people that have sent in an email to us over the last six months or so, Mark, will will throw their names into a hat or a cup and we will draw out the winner from that. So we have a couple of weeks or so. We might even extend it for until after the 50th episode, Mark, maybe the 52nd episode, so that'll make it almost spot on a year that we've been um, doing the podcast and so it means we have an extra few weeks for people to send us an email. And even if you just send an email to say hello, please enter me in the competition. We will put them in the hat for the draw mark. So vetgurus at gmail.com, send your entries into us. Say hello to us. Because the flood of the emails, Mark, they went back to a bit of a, a trickle, didn't they? Although we've got an interesting one to talk about today, a new sponsor or a new patron. So um, we do like getting emails from our regular listeners and even our irregular listeners. So please send us an email and say hi. So, Mark, we do have a new patron, don't we? So do you want to talk about our new patron? I do want to give a shout-out to um, Dr. Hume, Dr. Sandy Hume, who is our newest patron, um, and uh, he sent us a, like, a God. Oh, have you got me there, we Brendan? have lost Mark. He has completely gone off 
Hello, hello. It's politely gone off. Out of, back. Oh, he's back. Uh, my he's back. back again. I don't know what you did there, Mark. But, well, um, I don't know either. I think I'm, I've just, you know, I've invested in a new uh, microphone, um, and I just think my uh, my ineptness with the microphone is um, is causing us some technical difficulty. So I apologise for that. But I was just uh, saying that. Um, Dr. Alexander Hume, Sandy Hume from um, the ACT is our uh, newest patron and it's um, just great to have him on board. He sent us a very interesting and complicated email with several questions, um, which I know we'll aim to get to over the next few weeks, but uh, we just did want to give a shout out to Sandy and uh, and thank him for his uh um, for listening, first of all, for sending us an email, second, because we know you, everyone knows how we love those, and to thank him for uh, uh, contributing, throwing us a bone, I think is the terminology you use, Brendan. Yeah, yeah and thank you become our first beauty, which is a bearded dragon, bearded dragon supporter. And, Mark, we are having some fun technical difficulties here because I can hear myself um, feeding back from your microphone. Now I can't anymore. So it's going to be one of those episodes that I might have to cut up a little bit and edit at the end. But um, we'll see how we go. So, yes, thank you, Sandy, very much for becoming a beardy patron of the Vet Gurus. And we will answer your very thought provoking questions or your comments probably next episode or the, or the one after that so keep listening sandy and um we'll get back to you very shortly um great to hear from you mark you want to talk about our first news story and it is about well guess what birds <laughs> far away it is about birds brendan um and and you know we try and make these stories a little bit positive and upbeat but this one really is one that gets me a little bit down. Um, this is uh, from the Mother Nature Network, and um, the story is uh, about the eight bird species which are the first to be declared extinct this decade. Now, there is a little bit of politics and a little bit of um, conservation biology um, and a lot of sadness in this story. Um, the politics is that it actually takes quite a bit to get uh, to have these species declared extinct um, because, you know, once they are declared extinct, a lot of the conservation uh, effort and dollars that might go to them stop. Um, and so there's a lot of birds who might technically be extinct, but um, in order that uh, at least some research still flows in their direction, they're not technically declared extinct. Um but uh, BirdLife International and the Journal of Biological Conservation has listed uh, eight species. Five are uh, from the rainforests of South America. Um, and, Jesus, uh, it's just heartbreaking to think that. Um, and it's really interesting that um, this is a single-factor type problem, that um, the, the result, the, the cause... Um, is largely deforestation. Um, these are not uh, complex, you know, um, uh, predator, um, uh, a whole bunch of other factors that might be leading a species to to extinction. These are simply we've chopped down all their homes, um, and uh, and some of them are not uh, all that, you know, they're not um, birds that are of a very restricted uh, range, um, but. Um, 
geez, these ones uh, are specifically the result of uh, unsustainable agriculture drainage of certain areas, um, destroying the forest and finally logging. Um, it's, it is, um, well, out and out depressing, I suppose, to think that, um, that, uh, um, that birds like the Spix macaw uh, previously has been um, classified as uh, extinct in the wild, uh, but there's now a couple of uh, other large, the Glaucus macaw, large uh, showy birds, um, the New Caledonian lorikeet, not from South America, obviously. Um, uh, I don't know, Brendan. I just have stories like this, see the broad range of species and um, uh, different locations, and I just wonder whether we're going to ever be able to stop it, Brendan. Well, you might have a bit of a solution in your next story that's after after my first story, Mark. So, But, yes, it was... Same old, same old, isn't it? It's depressing, isn't it, Mark? You're, you've started on a downer, as usual, so I'll see what I can do to to brighten up our listeners with. The story on that California it has passed a bill, and I find this story a little bit disturbing but uplifting at the same time, Mark, and hopefully you'll see why in a second. California has passed a bill banning the sale of cosmetics tested on animals which is good, obviously. Um, California's cracking down on animal testing, according to the article, becoming the first state to pass legislation that would ban the sale of cosmetics that have been tested on animals. So my first thought there is, is this the first state in the US that has banned these um, this particular aspect for, for testing cosmetics on animals? I would have thought it would have been um, already passed in several other places already, so that's the first downer in my my opinion of the story. Um, but in a, a unanimous vote, the California legislature passed the Senate Bill 1249, and if expected, this is the other thing that I found quite interesting, Mark, if, as expected, it's signed into law by the governor, it will go into effect on... January the 1st, 2020, Mark. So I don't know what the story is. Maybe it just takes that long for bills to pass in, in California. Maybe they're all out surfing or, or doing something else, um, Mark, are they? Um, but why does it have to take another year and a half or so or almost a year and a half before they pass the bill? Um, so not notwithstanding any other law, the article goes on to say, it is unlawful for a manufacturer to import for profit, sell or offer for sale in this state any cosmetic if the cosmetic was developed or manufactured using an animal test that was conducted or contracted by the manufacturer on or after January the 1st, 2020 it will be. So it's good. It's a good thing that it's there, but the, the query I have on it, why does it take so long to pass that um, into into actual law? Maybe that's the way the law works generally, um, and it's my ignorance there, Mark. And secondly, I'm, I'm just surprised that this is the first state um, in the States that, um, that um, has passed such a bill. Um, and it does mention that although California would be the first state in the US to ban animal tested products, many other countries have legislated against cosmetic testing 
in some way um, for a fair period of time, in, um, around 40 countries at least, um, including, including European Union members and, and places like Switzerland and Taiwan and even Turkey and Norway and New Zealand, Mark. Um, so, yeah. And the other thing that annoyed me about this article was, uh, I don't know whether you've read it in its entirety, Mark, is the last paragraph or the penultimate paragraph, um, which I quote, that says the bill was backed by animal rights groups, celebrities, dozens of cosmetic companies that use alternative testing methods and thousands of Californians. Um, why they have to mention that it was backed by celebrities to give it credence, I just do not understand. And you, might, you know my thoughts on that sort of thing, celebrities and, and, and their sponsoring of things that they shouldn't put their noses into, Mark. What, what's your thoughts on that? Well, I think it's, it is frustrating because... To be fair to the celebrities, there's going to be ones that are, you know, for any given topic, there's going to be ones that have opinions both ways and, you know, you've got to listen to the ones that are right as well as the ones that are wrong. Um, and I would Just don't listen to the ones that have had a facelift, Mark. That's what I would say. Good guidance, Brendan. Good, a good rule of thumb, I reckon. Or the Botox or any cosmetically tested cosmetic tested on animals it's tricky because the the other thing they mentioned in that article is is that they watered it down to a certain extent because they were worried that if they just had it as a blanket ban um, on cosmetics supplied from any manufacturer um, that it might end up somehow preventing important science based study on on um, that that well, and this is another debate in itself, isn't it, Mark, on, on on products in animals that might help prevent or cure cancer and those sorts of things. So, um, yeah, there's a, there is a little bit more to it than than my sort of flip, flippant arguments about the particular article. But I, I, I just become ambivalent with these sort of articles, Mark. Um, I get I get a little bit annoyed. And I had an email from one of our listeners this week saying. Brendan, stop getting so angry. So I'm not angry anymore, Mark. I'm just annoyed about things. <laughs> it makes me think of, I don't know, have you um, seen any of the uh, goop discussion on on uh, social media, the, the arguments between the uh, good Dr. Jennifer Gunter and, um, and uh, Gwyneth Paltrow and her, um, is this ringing any bells for you, Brendan? No, it doesn't. It doesn't. Well, it'll be a discussion. Um, enlighten us briefly, Mark. <laughs> well, it'll be a discussion for us to have another time. But um, just let me give you a little taste that um, Goop is the page you go to if you need to get a jade vaginal egg, Brendan. Okay. I'll, um, we won't go any further with that because we want to keep our um, we want to keep our um, podcast. Uh, Family orientated, don't we? Um, <laughs> what's your second news story to follow on from the first one? I think it is a little bit more upbeat, isn't it? Well, it, it directly relates to the first one in that it uh, is um, related to extinction and birds. But um, uh, and I feel particularly personally connected to this story as a number of uh, you know uh, absolute clear disclosure. I know a number of people that are involved in this process, but I wanted to give a shout out to Zorro. Um, Zorro is a four-month-old border collie who has been 
um, taken on board by the Difficult Bird Research Group, um, uh, which works out of ANU. And in particular, Zorro's job is going to be searching the forests of Tasmania for regurgitated, very foul-smelling masked owl pellets. Um, masked owls are endangered, um, and we literally have very, very little idea about how many there are. And when I was down in Tasmania a couple of months ago, I did have the pleasure of seeing them in the wild, um, but, um, but even the researchers just literally don't know how many there are. And so the plan is to train Zorro to sniff out these uh, pellets, the regurgitated indigestible remains that the owls chuck up of their prey um, and they there are some very neat mathematics which will allow them to locate birds locate a little bit about their territory do some even dna some prey analysis uh, but finding these pellets is cornerstone to saving these birds in the wild and they're amazing brendan they're the largest um taito owl they're the heart shaped faced owls like barn owls they're the largest of those species in the world and they're very very impressive animals um, and so anything we can do to save them and prevent them joining that list that we were talking about before i think is something that's really worth uh, getting involved in so there is i would like to mention a fundraising effort at the moment, um, a possible site um, run by my friend Henry Cook, um, who's trying to raise $60,000 um, to uh, finance the work of these dogs across Tasmania. And I commend it to everyone. Get on to it. While, straight after you've become a patron of our wonderful podcast, get over to Possible and um, uh, throw a bone to Zorro, metaphorically speaking. Yes, and Zorro is certainly a cute little puppy, isn't he? Oh, she is Zorro he or she? I'm pretty sure um, Zorro is a he. It's a he, yeah, four months old Zorro, yes. So, yes, it is a bit of a positive story there, Mark, about trying to save these, and they, they are another amazing species, aren't they, These those owls? And you're a, a lucky man to see them. And um, have you taken any pics of that? Of them, I haven't seen any pics of them from you. Cracking photos of um of um, masked owls, so I'll uh, I'll flick one to you, Brendan. We can set it up at somewhere on the the uh, web page for this podcast. Excellent, excellent. Well, I think well I, I'm not going to do a second news story, Mark. We've been prattling on long enough. I think we should jump into our main topic this week, which is something that I think. A lot of vets, even those who are not dealing with unusual pets, so dog and cat veterinarians as well, should, or any veterinarians, should be getting into. And I, I, I think they, they'd be surprised at how f much fun, how economical it is, and how easy it is to master the basics of this um, particular medical and surgical um, instrument mark and that is endoscopy we're going to talk about endoscopy and the basics and do you want to kick off and 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 we had a little discussion before we started the podcast didn't we mark about how what we were going to say about endoscopy but um, perhaps you kick it off with our thoughts generally about 
the misconceptions about what endoscopy is and and why we think it's exciting and you should get into it. Well, you, you're you're, um, gonna, you're making me sound like I'm going to be much more entertaining than I really am. But our discussion before we came on air, I was really, you know, we chat about the various topics we're going to cover that we might possibly cover that could be interesting. And this is one that that really, when we, you know. Uh, talked over it i thought yeah this is one that we really need to get into and and it is an exciting topic i've got to tell the story of um you know i've been doing this for quite a while um and of course as a practice that deals in uh, avian medicine we do we did for quite a while a lot of uh, avian surgical sexing and that sort of you know dropped off considerably as the um as the uh, more free availability of DNA testing has meant that the, um, uh, the people who own birds are often looking for a bargain, um, clip the nails to get a drop of blood and, and get their birds uh, sexed that way. So we're not doing nearly as much um, surgical sexing as we once did, um, but it means I've been playing around with the device for a long time. And we did go to a conference, one of the UPAV conferences in Sydney, I think it was a couple of years ago, where Dr. Divers, Steve Divers, um, uh, was one of the keynote speakers. And he, uh, he, geez, he's, he can get you fired up, that bloke, for all the, uh, the other positive things he does in the veterinary world. He's a bloody entertaining speaker and um and he did get to the point where i thought oh geez i've got so much more with the uh, probe that i have the scope that i have. and um and so i did try a whole bunch of i even tried some of the endosurgery that uh, Stephen was describing and and when i got to that point i did have a little bit of a light bulb moment that um, that I think um, there are a whole bunch of relatively simple things that we can do that make it a very useful tool in practice. A lot of those, you know, more complex things, we certainly don't have to um, be doing those in the first instance until, you know, we do have a fair bit of experience. And sometimes you never have to do them. Sometimes just doing those simple things are more satisfying and uh practice building than doing the, uh, you know, more extravagant endosurgical techniques. Yes, because I think a lot of people think, oh, endoscopy, it's just, it is doing laparoscopy and endosurgery and all this fancy equipment and expensive equipment is needed and you need um, very extensive training for it because, and you need two or three ports into the animal and you need insufflation and which you do need if you end up doing all that all the fancy endosurgery but endoscopy is much more than that and and i really encourage vets to think about getting back to basics and just buying or borrowing a simple rigid endoscope and shoving it down holes and into holes in 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 your patients and it's that simple to start with so all you need is a rigid endoscope you need a light cable and you need a light source to start with and you'll be amazed at the things you can do with that um with that um instrument and 
um, we'll talk specifics, and I'd I'd, I'd suggest um, people start off with looking down ears, so otoscopy, looking down these ears. You get a fantastic magnification of the ear canal, and you'll have great fun um, looking down ears, and and it will open up a new world of fun um, in veterinary practice for you. So um, yes, you may be used to looking down ears with your basic otoscope and the otoscope cone, but the beauty of using the endoscope is that you get a much better a picture with the endoscopes that we have these days, those rigid Hopkins type um, endoscopes, and then attaching it. The next bit of um, gear I would suggest people consider purchasing is some sort of recording device. And it doesn't have to be anything too fancy. There are some amazing, um, complete sets of, of, of recording devices and uh, endoscopy equipment where, where they also include the monitor as well, Mark, and Storts is the classic one for that that's known for that, the high-end equipment. But you can also get away initially and, and even longer term with with some basic um, equipment like a simple monitor and uh, a simple um, camera that attaches to it, but you don't even need the, um, that initially and you just use the actual scope itself um, but once you do buy that camera and that recording device and the recording devices you can buy off even these days basic recording devices off eBay and, and the one I'm in, currently using Mark, which I haven't spoken to you about is one that that is often used for gamers to record them um, people doing those um, online gaming um, so it's a, a video capture device and I think it cost me the princely sum of about $120 that I attach to the endo camera um, that's attached to the scope and using that I get fantastic pictures and recordings and it just records straight to a USB stick. I can then take that USB stick and pop it into a PC or a Mac computer, put it on, um, down, move it across to the iPad for instance and then in the consultation I can show the client the picture of the before and after of their their dog, their rat, their ferret, their guinea pig, their their rabbit. Um, that I've looked down the ear canal, and this is what I found. This is the otitis I found. This is the um, this is the grass seed that I found down your guinea pig's ear, and you as well as I, Mark. We're we're really keen on giving clients lots of visual information, aren't we? And it's amazing when you show a, a video or a picture of the grass seed down their guinea pig's ear, uh, and then um, the before and after shot. It's it's a picture's worth two thousand words when we do that, Mark. So yeah, I'd I'd start off with just getting the scope. Popping it down an ear canal, having a look, and, and you'll be amazed that the more often you use the endoscope, the 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 the, the increase um, of the endoscope will occur in the practice, and and you'll you'll love it. So you don't have to jump and think, gee, I have to spend twenty thousand dollars and buy all the gear and do fancy endo surgery. No, start off popping the endoscope down the ear, and and working up your itchy. Um, dogs, cat, ferrets, whatever, um, the otitis, um, the, the sore ear cases, Mark. What's the other basic sort of method that um, the other spots, the other holes you'd be popping your endoscope in, Mark? Well, particularly with um, our uh, small exotic patients, I just get excellent value out of sticking the scope into the mouth of uh, our rabbits and rodents. Um, I think that, um, well, as you were saying before, um, can 
just providing the clients with um, that visual information. I think sometimes our, you know, people listen to us here and uh, we sound, sound droll and monotone. Um, oftentimes with our clients, I think their eyes glaze over and all the talk about spurs and pain and ulcers on the tongue just starts to blur into, um, into uh you know, not understanding exactly what's going on. But if you can show them a picture of the the of those issues in the mouth, the spurs piercing into the tongue and a um, little bit of blood and ulcer, and then afterwards show them an image of um, of you know what the tooth looks like after you've dealt with it with your uh, dental burr, that, that it is a completely different perception that's passed on to the client. And uh, and as you said, Brendan, you don't have to have um, necessarily, you don't have to start with uh, the uh, top shelf equipment to get um, really f- very good quality images um, and footage that you can show to clients. So, so I think, um, uh, and we regularly, you know, um, the problems in particularly rabbit and guinea pig mouths, um, they're a significant part of our caseload and to be able to see more specifically what's going on, get a more precise diagnosis, use the images, uh, the vision of what's going on in the mouth in the context of radiographs or sometimes CT, um, it just ups the diagnostic def- definitiveness of our work and uh, and it just means that the things that you do are much more likely you know, because your diagnosis is much tighter, um, the consequences of your work are likely to be much more predictable. So oh, go, go, Brendan. Yep, sorry. Um, yeah, so pop in the scope into those mouths of, of those animals and if we if we go into the exotics like you touched on there, rabbits, yeah, definitely guinea pigs as well, um, it, it's good to do, and, and rats and mice with those tiny little, tiny little mouths and then, you know, I'd, be, I'd then snap a little recording for those um, again to show the clients the before and after there, and that, you know, that the magnification you get with the um, with the scopes is is I think I've already mentioned it, and I'll keep mentioning it is is a bit of a key with it because you the detail you see it, and you may then pick up those spurs that you otherwise would not have just by um, having a bit of a poke in with, with um, opening the mouth with a gag and, and, and an otoscope cone, for instance, and an, or an ophthalmoscope with a, an, a, 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 a little light attachment with an otoscope attachment on it. So, um, yeah, you, you get a lot more detail there. So looking in those mouths, definitely. The other spot I like to, and going back to the ear one, I had a fantastic case the other day of a guinea pig that I'd decided oh it's got a bit of a sore ear i could see a little bit of pus down the ear in the consult and i admitted the pig for the day to do a bit of a workup and i was just about to um pop the little otoscope cone down there and have a little look with the handheld um, light source and i thought no i'll turn on the connect up the endoscope um, the rigid scope and um, the monitor and um do it properly and um, as soon as I popped that down there it was great because I hit record and I ended up finding a fantastic little grass seed that was stuck down there that I probably would not have seen until I just flushed it out because I was planning on flushing that ear so I got a nice before and after that I ended up 
emailing the client the whole video of the before and after and they absolutely loved it mark um just just seeing the before and after there so it's, it's very satisfying when when you do these sorts of cases and and um, you get that type of result with them but the other spot i like to pop the little um scope up and this is where it gets a little bit a little bit um a little bit more expensive because we then have to buy a second scope in that is up the nose of these and and most of these um bits that we've spoken about initially mark we're, we're using anything from what a 2.7 rigid scope 2.7 millimeter or four millimeter i often use a four millimeter one but i have a 2.7 one as well um, and even a 1.9 or so short one that i sometimes use um for the for the ears and the mouth but for the nose i can sometimes get away with the the 2.7 size scope um, but i'm lucky enough to have a semi-flexible scope as well that i can put up the nostril of some very small animals um, to look for obstructions and polyps and tumors and um, and um, some of these chronic chronic sneezing um, small mammals um, I'm putting that little scope up there so yeah we start to broaden things a bit with the equipment when we're looking at different um, by it purchasing more than one scope there but but popping these scopes up the nose um, is, is good fun as well isn't it Mark do you do do you do it, um, pop these scopes up the nose of dogs and cats very often? We do. We've got just the 2.7 millimeter scope, so we don't have the wide range of options that you do, Brendan. But, um, but we, and so we're not, uh, that scope, as you know, doesn't, uh, doesn't, um, we go up most of the areas of our, um, small animal, our small exotic patients, but we do stick it in the nose of, um, of dogs and cats, and, uh, and certainly it gives us, uh, um, you know, uh, excellent vision and where we might try and stick an otoscope or um, something like that in to get a bit of a view, the wide field of view, um, the magnification, the 30-degree angle of the the uh, otoscope lens, um, those things all allow us to get a much more useful visual appreciation of what's going on inside the nose and, um, and certainly, um, you know, identifying... Um, lesions, identifying uh, uh, purulent areas. Of course, uh, with, as with your guinea pig's ear, um, there's been several times I've been lucky enough to pull a, a piece of grass or a grass seed out of the nostril of a dog or a cat, and they are really gratifying experiences. To um, you know, there's so many of our veterinary experiences which are uh, chronic or we're treating them palliatively and to have those moments where you just absolutely solve a problem um they uh they're um highlights of our day so um having the tools to do that and becoming familiar with them and using them um i, I can't encourage people enough to do that brendan i've got a bit of a question yes and then the next spot that you may consider popping or putting these little scopes up or down or th into mark is the is the back end of the animals actually no let's stick with the front end um because the the other one that i think um, people forget about considering 
to use these scopes for is um, esophageal um, chain, um, concerns or, or stomach issues, and in particular ferrets, Mark, so those those vomiting ferrets or those chronic um, vomiting ferrets, um, putting the scope down, um, and you can certainly use a reasonably sized scope. You could use a 2.7 or a 4 quite easily in most adult ferrets or most ferrets and having a bit of a look down the back of the throat there and into that esophagus and then into the stomach um, to see if we've got any changes consistent, for instance, with helicobacter or it's done a ferret thing and chewed on something it shouldn't have, Mark. Um, and the other big one that I use the scope for weekly, if not daily, Mark, is for endoscope-assisted intubation um, in my rabbits. So that's my standard technique for intubating my rabbits is I have the endoscope uh, beside the ET tube and I'm using the endoscope to visualise the the glottis or the epiglottal folds in the in the rabbit there, and I'm using that to guide the the ET tube into the rabbit to intubate them, and it is um, it's quite easy and it's relaxing, um, and it's uh, knowing that you've you've got a patent airway there in that rabbit. I, I, in the past, I did use to do the blind technique, which is just um, intubating rabbits by feel, um, but I, I love doing it um, via the scope these days, Mark. Do you do you do it that method or do you do try and put the scope? Because the other method for intubating rabbits is putting a small scope um, in the actual ET tube. So the scope is the stylet of the tube and then that is passed into the trachea and then withdrawing the scope. Which method do you use, Mark? Brendan, we've previously I have used the scope as a stilet, um, but um, but I, I think that um, leaves the scope a little bit vulnerable. And when you've invested the money in these devices, I think you've got to pick the circumstances where you do it. And so I have lately been just adopting blind technique. It sort of suits my general, you know, blind leading the blind sort of um, <laughs> style of practice. Um, but um. Uh, but I do know, um, and my staff will tell you, that um, the blind technique probably only works in about 70% of cases. There would be 30% of our rabbit anesthesias that we uh, fiddle around with for maybe a couple of minutes to see if we can get in. And then um, if we can't, where we are worried about um, uh, leading to laryngeal edema or other complications, so we don't persist. Um, but, um, but I'll be interested to give the the side-by-side technique a little bit of a bash, I reckon. Um, it, uh, yeah, it works, works. It's quite easy, Mark. Um, I think it is anyway, and it's extending the rabbit's head upwards um, almost almost on a, at least a 45-degree angle, um, not quite as um, hyperextended that you would for the blind technique, and um, so lowering the surgical table down and then popping the scope. I usually pop the scope in first, um, and these days I, I then spray the, the larynx with um, some local anaesthetic spray, then pop the local anaesthetic spray away and then grab my tube in one hand um, with an actual stylet in it because... Personally, I find that when, when I'm intubating rabbits, I, um, having a stylet in the ETU tube makes a world of difference, even when I'm using the endoscope. And I have the very tip of the 
ET tube with the stylet mark um, at a bit at a slight angle. So it's got a little hook on it right at the tip, the bit which is um, entering into the um, into the trachea has a little a little um, hook on it um, because I find that angle works quite well. So I, I will then um, introduce the scope, and the, I'm left-handed. I have the scope in my left hand. And with the when I'm doing rabbits, I I look through the actual scope um, eyepiece. I don't connect it to the monitor. Um, I just find it quicker and easier personally to do it than looking at the monitor, Mark. Um, and have the ET tube in my other hand with the stylet in it, and um, I introduce them both together. Um, an assistant will be holding the animal and the and the mouth gag. Um, at the same time and um, I just introduce them parallel to each other down the back of the throat and you can use the tip of the ET tube or the or the scope to to push away the bit of the flap of the um, dorsal palate or whatever to to reveal the um, glottis there to intubate it Mark if that makes sense. Makes perfect sense Brendan I didn't mean to interrupt before I was going to ask is that some of your fencing wire that you use as a stilette just bending the end a little bit? Yeah, I found another. Uh, yeah, I found it. Uh, 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 I just happened to be at the hardware store last month, and I found an, another another type of the fencing wire, which was nicely plastic coated, Mark. Um, so it's even less traumatic um, for for the ET tube. So I've um, I, it cost me the princely sum of about five Australian dollars for about fifty meters of it. So I've chopped that up into suitable sizes um, for the. Um, for the ET tubes, and um, they're all ready to go. And I've just then um, burred off the end or rounded off the ends that I've cut um, um, so there's no sharp ends, and they fit perfectly um, as stylates. So maybe I should market them, Mark, and sell them at some exorbitant price um, to, to veterinarians as um, stylates for exotic um, ET tubes. <laughs> um, with, is there a particular brand of ET tube? We've... we've um, We've tried several different ones, uh, and they all have their pluses and minuses. We have a cook one that has a, um, you know, a, a, almost looks like a spring, a metal coil that maintains its patency, but uh, it tends to be a, um, you know, the wall of it is very thick, and so the lumen is uh, more narrow than most. And we've got some cook ones that are. Uh, very very thin and and uh, we generally use those in our birds but which ones do you use in the rabbits Brendan? in the rabbits i just use the standard clear um um tubes uh, that are anything for so the two um usually the uncuffed sometimes sometimes the cuff tubes with the slightly bigger rabbits because um i find the cuffed ones a little bit tricky to get through the glottis because the cuff increases that diameter and i usually go with a 2.0 size tube or a 2.5 or a 3 in a big rabbit um or, or a 3 cuffed in a big rabbit um so so no just the standard et tubes that i might be using on, on a small cat or a kitten for instance um yeah so if that makes sense and and they seem to work quite well but for me personally the trick with 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 being able to intubate with those tubes when i'm using the endoscope guided technique 
is to have a stylet in there that stiffens up that tube. And as I mentioned previously, having a little, a, a bit of a hook on the end of it where, where, where I'm introducing it into the um, glottis. Um, and as soon as I've popped it in there and I can visually see that, I then pull out the stylet um, and then I introduce the tube a little bit further and um, remove all the rest of the hardware and away we go. We tie that tube in and um, we're, we're into our surgery or whatever we're doing with that particular individual. So, yeah, I, I, I love using my endoscope for intubating rabbits. Um, yeah, so the other area that I, I've, I've just started um, doing more of with endoscopy, Mark, is, is, is shoving the endoscope up the back end of animals. So I don't know whether you've been doing that much. Um, um, actually, I'm jumping around a bit here. Um, the, um, using an endoscope up the front end and, and doing that, um, looking at um, in the stomach of animals, it's great in animals like our, our ferrets, for instance, and um, the difficulty with rabbits and, and guinea pigs, are you, you, you don't really get to see too much there because we're, we're dealing with a herbivore there that the stomach's going to be full of food and and you don't want to flush any of that out there. So it, it's really just um, limited the access and, and, and the use of it for for scoping um, stomachs, for instance, of rabbits and guinea pigs, you may you may have a little bit of a poke around to look at the um, esophageal and the pharyngeal area, I suppose, if we have issues there um, with them. And um, rarely, I don't know whether you've done it, Mark, um, because you, I suppose you may struggle with the size of the um, endoscope or the telescope you have. Um, rarely I'll, I'll do it, but I, I do occasionally or rarely um, scope down the um, down the trachea in some of these animals and potentially into the to the bronchi with them, and that's quite a bit of a challenge and quite fun because you're un, you're limited with the mammals definitely with the time that you can do that for because obviously you you haven't got an ET tube down them and you have a quick scope down down the um, trachea or the or, um, to the level of the bronchi, for instance, and have a bit of a poke around and then back out and you have to put it back on the, the anaesthetic gas, but that's quite 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 fun as well, Mark, up the front end. Um, so have you scoped any of the um, backsides of these animals, Mark, and, and can you remember any case? You know that um, there's n- I would never miss an opportunity to stick a scope in any particular orifice, and so I do take advantage of poking it in the butt end of things every once in a while and probably... With, uh, without much surprise, the most common thing that we're doing these days with it is um, other birds that uh, that have um, either reproductive disease or cloacal disease. Um, it uh, does. It is one of those situations where we are generally trying to get uh, a little bit of dilation with some fluid, um, uh, insufflating with um, some warmed saline to dilate the cloaca. Um, and uh, and yeah, introducing the scope and having a look around the cloaca, both in reptiles and uh, um, birds. Um, what a particular case that jumps to mind is um, uh, one of our uh, bearded dragons who um, uh, they do have a habit of um, wiping their butt, inverting their cloacal mucosa when they eliminate and um, and literally wiping it on the substrate. And some substrates are a little bit irritant to the lining of the the uh, cloaca and it's not uncommon to get a 
um, a bit of a reaction there and sometimes even some scabbing over, some uh, eschar formation, um, and that can block up the ureters, uh, can can lead to some quite serious problems and, um, and just... Uh, turning the lizard on, anaesthetizing the lizard, turning it on its back and um, using a syringe to uh, just uh, a couple of mils of warm saline to dilate that cloaca and introducing the, the scope particularly uh, um, gives an opportunity to visualize a lot of the structures in there and make a decision about the significance of the irritation. Have you scoped any any turtles, any dystochic turtles, Mark, to um, have a look at what's happening with the eggs? No, I have not, Brendan. That's a, a, I know that um, that uh, that was one of the things that uh, Doctor Divers was touching on, um, and uh, and I bet it would be a useful thing to do. You've no doubt done it. I don't think I have, Mark. I keep thinking after after I've, whenever I work up one of those cases, I think, why didn't I shove the scope up its back end and have a bit of a poke around? And I must, Mark. I keep forgetting every time I have one in, or or, or a few of the cases I've had them in, I, I, I keep um, slapping myself around, Mark, thinking I should shove the scope up there. I keep talking about shoving the scope up places and I, I forget um, to do it with those. The other area that I'm, I'm quite interested in potentially trying and I've only just started considering it is is looking at these guinea pigs, Mark, um, that have these chronic urinary tract issues and these rabbits that have the chronic urinary tract issues. So these these um, guinea pigs and rabbits that have uroliths, for in- instance, where we have these blockages in the urethra or even these stones or, or sand in the bladder um, and popping the scope up there. And I think my smallish scope um, will fit quite um, quite well, although it's a little bit of a challenge to get it up those that um, urinary tract there, but um, there's been some good papers reporting the usefulness of doing that and even potentially with a sheath mark and that, that covers the scope. Um, we haven't spoken about the sheath that you can purchase for these, most of the common um, size scopes that will then have ports on them that you can then introduce all the fun things, can't you, like... Um, Insufflating, so putting um, gas in there to to um, to inflate body cavities or even fluids to flush things out. But even more important is using the little forceps and the biopsy forceps and the graspers and those sorts of things. And I'd love to play around. I haven't had one yet that I've been managed to do it um, using the grasping forceps, Mark, and and managing to retrieve or, or break down one of these. Uroliths that's sitting in the urethra there, Mark. And um, my ultimate aim would be to then, and I ha- don't have it, is to um, um, have the little radio, um, what's it called, lithotripsy um, 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 attachments, and then being able to break down these um, stones that we get inside the guinea pig's bladder. Because invariably, what I end up doing with guinea pigs that have those um, bladder stones is doing an X lap on them and um, opening up that bladder and I think it's going to be a lot less traumatic and hopefully in the future we'll have specific um, gear for this for um, dealing with them in guinea pigs and rabbits, Mark, where we can um, scope them and we can break down those um, bladder stones um, by the ultrasound or whatever it is that we um, use with those. Um, Do you think that's a good idea, Mark? I I think that you've highlighted one of the things about endoscopy that, I mean, this is... uh, uh, each time I talk to someone who has 
experience with these telescopes is that they um, the the uses are only limited by your imagination and the number of holes you can find, and um, and each time you talk to someone different, they have a particular uh, an additional thing that I haven't thought of that the the devices can be turned to and the use that they can be applied to. So I've got no doubt that um, some of the people that are listening to us uh, um, will, in the course of their veterinary career, come across at their place of work a device like this and um, and they'll probably think of an additional way that you can use them. And so um, I, I think that's one of the true um, benefits of these devices that the horizon is rolling back and the ways that we can use them uh, is opening up all the time i've got a question for you just before we finish up um i struggled when i went from looking in the eyepiece i think i trained myself to you know use the the uh, um you know the the hand-eye coordination the the positioning all that sort of thing in one sort of sense when i was looking in the eyepiece and once we've gotten a, uh, a camera and a monitor it's completely changed the sense of position the my whole hand-eye coordination had to be relearned have you had a similar problem switching between looking in the eyepiece and looking at the monitor absolutely um and i th- I, I think the trick there is and i have i don't have it set up properly or correctly is and um that's where steve O, steve divers um talks about um, the ergonomics of where you should sit and where or stand and where you should place the monitor and and how you hold the gear and that's where if people end up getting into endoscopy they should go to one of these training sessions once they get stuck into it and get addicted to it um, and and um, I think that's a big part of it having the monitor at the correct place virtually opposite you from the from the so you're standing say for instance on one side of the surgery table and then the patient's in front of you and directly behind the patient is the monitor and that you're not constantly craning your head this way or that but yes I, I still struggle with with that coordination from from changing from looking directly down the scope which I think is the easiest bit initially that's for sure um to to try not to look at your hands and looking at the monitor um, and and working out what's left and right and up and down. Yeah, definitely. And I I think it's an acquired thing and I'm still, I must admit, I'd I'd still regard myself still at the learner stage with that because at at times I just think, gee, I'm just, just, you know, I I think I'm turning left but I'm turning right a lot of the time with it. So I don't think I'm any different than you, Mark. Um, and then you know, and then that leads on to the last bit with the with the endoscopy, which is getting back to where we started, Mark. And that a lot of people think that endoscopy is is doing laparoscopy and, and doing endosurgery, and and that's the ultimate aim, I think, with a lot of people with doing it. And um, and that's what you'd potentially work up to. But I'd encourage people to to just get back to basics and, and, and think about how much fun it is for for limited expense um, and, and it will pay for itself w- w- without any doubt. Um, and you need to charge for these things and, and start, um, start doing some basic endoscopy and, and pop in the little scope down the ears and up the nose and in the mouth and... Um, down into the stomach and um, up the backside and you'll be surprised at what you can end up finding and seeing and how much fun it is and and I think that's that's an important thing isn't it Mark is trying to 
trying to find everyday things every day that you enjoy doing. And um, if it's a little addition like an endoscope that makes your day more fun and um, helps you stop being burnt out, then then go out and buy it. Well, I think that you're exactly right. We have to – you were getting a bit profound and deep and philosophical there, Brendan. I was, I was just getting a little tear in my eye then, but I <laughs> you're getting old and um, emotional mark i think you um, like like um like both of us so um i think we um before we get on to um our our um, philosophical discussion we should sign off and um put our listeners out of their misery but don't forget to email us vetgurus at gmail.com so you can enter the competition all you need to say is hi please enter me in the competition and we will enter you in the competition for an unyet named prize or prizes there might be more than one prize and we will go to no expense at all to post it out to you regardless of where you are in the world we will send it to you so um yeah send us an email because we we love our listeners, don't we, Mark, our, our subscribers? So um, thank you very much for listening. And um, I think we'll hand over to the Vet Guru's outro guy and we will talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.